Well, if there's faster than me, that's a problem. And I am not that fast of a runner. So usually runners will kind of get to a point where you can run side by side mm-hmm. and still talk. And so that's kind of just something runners do. If you, if well, I clearly Carly has not. <laughs> so I've heard. So, so I hear. <laughs> I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? So please welcome Peggy Johnson to the couch. Peggy grew up in a very full household just outside of LA. She was the second youngest out of 15 children, one five. She said the experience taught her how to take the temperature of a room, which was definitely helpful later in her career. Peggy spent almost 25 years working her way up the ladder at the tech company Qualcomm. And in 2014, she became the executive vice president of business development at Microsoft, where she drives strategic partnerships. One more thing, Peggy's an avid runner on top of it all and has been known to carry out negotiations while literally on the run. That's my nightmare. But Peggy, (laughs) welcome to the couch. Thanks, Danielle and Carly. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. We are thrilled to have you. Um, We've known you for four years now, which is sort of crazy. I was always so impressed that you remembered us and like and knew what the skim was. And I remember literally the first thing that we learned about you was how big your family was. And I will never forget this fun fact. So I definitely want to dig into how you make yourself known. But let's start first. Um, you spent 20, almost 25 years at the same company, which is such a rare thing to do in today's world. What were you doing there? And what was it like to be in one place for 25 years? Well, I think when I started, I never thought I would be there for 25 years. Um, I'd had a job in college that rolled in over into a full-time job at General Electric. I was an intern in college and then right out of college. Um, and at one point, uh, they were looking to move the entire San Diego office to Syracuse, New, New York. And I just knew that I couldn't live in all that snow. <laughs> I grew up in Los Angeles, lived in San Diego. So that's how I made you know, one of my first big career decisions. I can't live in snow. <laughs> and I ended up answering an ad, that's how long ago it was, in the newspaper for Qualcomm. And I started as an engineer. And I was an engineer for several years. And I think you know what kept me there was there was always a new challenge. There was always something exciting to pursue. I had great leaders who encouraged me to pursue those things. And all of a sudden, I woke up one day. It was 25 years later. I mean, it was it's a, it was and is a fantastic company. And I've learned so much because I, I wore so many hats over those 25 years. What's not on your resume? I feel like we've gotten to learn so much about you in a short amount of time from knowing you. Um, but tell us one thing about your career that someone can't find on LinkedIn. Wow. Um, you know, something that I I don't necessarily list is sort of my view on partnerships. Now, some of that has come out since then, but it's not really something I list. But I feel very strongly about the value of partnerships. And when you look at someone's resume and they say, oh, they, you know, they ran an a business inside of a large company. Um, They were an engineer that shipped X amount of product. A lot of those things are very quantifiable. 
But then when you talk about partnerships, that's, you know, a little more smushy. What does that really mean? How do you quantify that? But for me, I think it's been the thread through my entire career as I've continued to hone that skill, you know, the partnering skill that I think has brought value to companies that I've worked with. And, but it's not something that's so easily quantifiable. And I struggled at times to convince um, early in my career, the company that that was something they should value. Because, you know, a lot of times they'll say, well, this person ships this amount of product every month. That's so valuable. Well, the thing that I'm fascinated by is you were able to sort of grow that skill set being in a company that you started at really young and grew to a very senior level. You also grew up in, as we talked about, like a very large family. How do you how do you make yourself known? How do you stand out and, and just kind of show everyone that you can evolve into something different? Well, it's interesting because I'm quite an introvert. So it, it wasn't like I was raising my hand up and saying, I'm here, I'm here. That's not me at all. So, you know, I guess just starting with my big family, um, we had a rule that dinner was at six and you had to be home at six. It was pretty good though that, you know, we enforced the rule. And if you weren't there, you just didn't eat. <laughs> so people were home generally. <laughs> and being the second youngest, um, I I would say I didn't get much attention and it and, and it was okay. I was fine with that because I was more introverted, but I was a listener, you know. I, these older siblings above me would be talking about their day or whatever, and I just started to listen. And I, that's really the skill that I honed over the years, and, it, and you know, it, it rolled into how I interact with partners. Um, again, I think an underappreciated skill because I think particularly early in my career, the way I was taught to get um, attention was to be aggressive and assertive in a meeting. And I was told all the time I was not those things. So my performance reviews weren't, you know, top notch because I wasn't checking that box. So now you're the executive vice president of business development at Microsoft. It's funny that you talked about um, what you just said about being more introverted, because having that title, I would think that you have to be an expert at negotiating in order to be successful in that role. Um, but everyone has to start somewhere. So let's start with the basics of negotiating. What was the first negotiation you remember being a part of? Wow. Um, probably it was back when Qualcomm was selling handsets, which was ages ago. You probably don't even remember that, but they were selling handsets when um, we were just flipping from analog phones to digital phones. And I was part of the negotiations. I was on the team that sold the handsets. And so you would go into these big um, operators and try and sell them a bunch of your handsets. And I remember... Um, you know, a lot of times we would get resistance. We didn't have a big name. We weren't a Samsung or a Nokia or an LG. And we would come in with these handsets and I would, and, and they would sort of dismiss us. And I thought, why are they dismissing us? It's a, it's a solid handset. It's, got, it's very well engineered. And I had to put myself in their shoes. And in order to do that, you have to listen. You have to understand why are they dismissing us, not just you know, revolt against that and get aggressive with them and say, hey, I've got something to sell here. I had to understand where they were coming from. And that is that was sort of the start of honing my negotiation skills, because if you can put yourself in to the shoes of the person on the other side of the table, it's a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. And so that was that's really the core of how I negotiate. So 
going back to you just said that you were an introvert. Um, and I think we really relate to that because, and I think our team is always surprised when we say this, but the hardest part of our roles is that we sort of are forced to be extroverts, but we're actually very introverted people in our personal lives. I was going to say our full-time lives, but our personal <laughs> lives. And negotiating for me, like I, I get nauseous. Like I get really nervous before I, I just it, for, I go into paralysis sometimes. How do you psych yourself up ahead of a negotiation? And has that changed from where you were at Qualcomm then to where you are now? Well, I, you know, what I do is I do my homework and I want to know everything about the other side. Again, why they're taking the position they're taking, um, what caused them to feel that way. If I, I talked about taking the temperature of the room, I want to know, are they going to come in angry? Are they going to come in um, uh, kind of mysterious, kind of redirect? You know, that's a that's a negotiating tactic. I try to learn as much as I can about the other side of the table. And I would say how that's changed over the years, going back to the very beginning, is um, I probably just wasn't that great at it. You know, I, I think you can say those things, but you really have to hone that skill. And it's very nuanced. And I remember about halfway through my um, Qualcomm career, walking into a room and we were trying to sell the person on the other side of the table something, I can't remember. And right away, I knew the answer was no. And um, they, and there was no changing them. You know, it's almost like they'd told the other party, yes, mm -hmm. already. It was one of those situations. And the gentleman that was with me, um, you know, starts to negotiate and tried all these tactics and he could see the, you know, I could see the wall. I knew we weren't going to get anywhere. And he just kept pushing and he started to get angry and his emotions came out. And I thought, you know, if he only just read this person's body language, I mean, I knew the second we walked in and it ended up, you know, kind of damaging the relationship. And you never want to do that. You always want to be able to come around again. And um, it was, it's one of these things where they're very subtle, right? It's, it's, it might be um, they've lost eye contact with us or they've, they're starting to turn their body a different way. And I want to say I read this all in a book somewhere, but I didn't. <laughs> and when you think about like that situation, yeah. do you believe that when someone says no, it can be yes? Or in I, that situation, it sounds like you wish you guys had kind of... I think what we should have done is paused right there and said, thank you, we understand your position and walked out and said, you know, and walked out amicably. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't quite have control of the, my negotiating partner and he just kept pushing and, and it got to then a bad place. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when we left, I thought, I don't know if we're going to be able to even repair this. But you, you want to be able to pause and just say, okay, I can see that this is a brick wall today. Maybe something else is going on. Who knows? But I'm not going to get anywhere with this person today. And having the patience to say that and then the ability to circle back at another time and another place is really powerful. But if you keep trying, you know, to press against this brick wall, you know, sometimes you can do irreparable damage. So it's good to take a pause. There's a difference, obviously, between negotiating with a potential client or a partner and negotiating for yourself. When you think back to your Qualcomm days, how did you figure out how to negotiate for yourself? What were the earliest times where you had to? Well, I would say, you know, going back to what I was saying about performance reviews, that I was an engineer, I was being, um, you know, rated on a scale that 
I thought, I am never going to be these things that they're rating me on, <laughs> you know, being more assertive in meetings, speaking up more in big groups. And it just wasn't me. I had tried. I wasn't, I wasn't that person. And at one point I thought, I think I'm going to have to leave, you know, the discipline of engineering, this company, I, you know, that surfaced a few times. And I remember having a conversation with my manager at the time. And he said, well, wait, don't, you know, I, I said, I think I have to leave. And he said, well, wait, why would you leave? And I said, because I don't think I can be successful here. And so it was the start of one of the first times I negotiated for myself because he said, well, what would make you successful? So kudos to him for asking the question. And I said, well, I think we just have to have a different rating system. You have to have other skill sets that you value at this company. Otherwise, I don't think I'll ever be you know, the the person that you want me to be. Were you scared to say that? I was. I can't and, believe you said that. Yeah. And I thought, I I think maybe what gave me the uh, ability to say that as I, as I had already figured out, I probably have to leave. And so I felt comfortable that the end game is that. Like you never want to, you have to be ready for that, yeah. for someone to say, okay, see ya. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I thought, well, I'll go do something else. Um, but he, this was so many years ago, and he said, you know what, I think you might be right. I think we do have sort of a one-sided um, performance rating review. And he went back, worked up our HR department, and they, you know, redid the entire performance review process so that quiet people, you know, there's quiet introverted men too, right, that, that were getting uh, low marks as well. So that everybody ha has something to bring to the table and we're rated on those things that we do well and versus just a list that somebody came up with one day that, you know, I couldn't see any skills that I had on that list. Is there a first negotiation that you remember where you walked out feeling successful? Um, yes. I remember it was um, when I was selling handsets, I was over in Korea uh, it was at Qualcomm, and um, the handset was uh, one of our first um, really sleek-looking handsets. And we were so proud of the design and everything, so it was super expensive. It was a premier high-end handset. And I remember um, they I convinced the other party, if you will, to take a lot more than they were initially looking at. It was like a couple hundred thousand handsets. And I walked out of there, and I they... They signed, everything was good. And about a week and a half later, the Korean currency dropped through the floor. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, that's okay, because I have a signed deal, you know, yeah. I'm good. Oh. And, um, but they came back to us and they said, look, you know, we have to pay in US dollars, which is typical mm -hmm. in, a, in a, you know, international transaction. And that's just impossible for us at this point. We're going to have to uh, step back from this deal. And, you know, we could have said, no, you can't. You've got a signed deal and force them to do that. That would have irreparably <laughs> damaged the relationship. We, we ended up not doing that. But it taught me, um, you know, a couple of things not to get too confident, yeah. even if you have a signed on the dotted line deal, uh, things can still unravel. Uh, you know, deals can unravel when it's not balanced um, incentives on both sides. If it's all good for party A and not for party B, those deals don't last very long. And you really have to have 
the ability to compromise in um, negotiating. Because if you don't and you you walk out and you're, you're cocky and you say, I've got everything I wanted, this is fantastic, and you know something changes on the other side and and the other party can't get any benefit you know what good is it right you, so you you'll have one deal but you may never have another deal so it's all about coming to mutual benefit in a negotiation and that's super important that's hard for some people cuz they think of negotiation as a sport you know it's like i'm going to win all the points but if you win all the points and they don't have any then it's not balanced and it will unwind Spring is coming, which means I may venture out of my house. Maybe. I really doubt it. Yeah, I know. Me too. <laughs> but I, I was thinking about it because it looks so nice outside. And the reason why I know that is because people take pictures. You know, I take pictures for our Instagram a lot. Um, I don't know if people follow us on Carly and Danielle. Um, Maybe you can frame them. Yeah. My contributions. It's a great idea. And our favorite way to frame things is through FrameBridge. You might have heard us talk about it. We're a little bit obsessed. They make it super easy and affordable to frame your favorite things, from art prints and posters to the travel photos sitting on your phone. Instead of the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39, and all shipping is free. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code SKIM, and you can save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code SKIM, and I'll say it one more time, framebridge.com, promo code SKIM. So I want to switch gears to Microsoft. Okay. <laughs> so you are now at Microsoft. Um, and fun fact about you is that you were Satya Nadella's first hire when he assumed his big role. Uh, so congrats on that. That's a good fun fact. Thank you. Uh, this was something that we did not know about you, which is that you are an avid runner. We are not. We especially. <laughs> we heard that you are well known for taking client meetings and negotiations while literally on the run. Now, I will say as someone who like hopes to continue doing business with you, this terrifies me because I literally will have to say no. But we have a lot of questions. My this. first question is very tactical. Yes. What if someone can't keep up? Is that like you are seeing them as weaker or do you adjust your pace? I no. Okay. What I do. <laughs> Can I now I'm going to tell never all my secrets. Like, I'm <laughs> really upset. I can't believe you admitted that. Well, I just have that was This just is really going to preclude us from working together. <laughs> no, I know. It's, well, I'll tell you how I even started to do this was, you know, back when I was in the wireless industry, the sport that everyone did was golf everyone play golf. And so, I mean, you know, I grew up in a big family. We didn't exactly golf on the weekends. Yeah. So I knew nothing about the game. I could play softball and except that wasn't the sport of choice in the wireless <laughs> industry. So um, I ended up trying to play golf with absolutely no lessons because I kept thinking, you know, I can swing a bat. I'm pretty good at that. I just need to go from, you know, horizontal to vertical, <laughs> right? That's all there is to this. And oh my goodness, I several times made a complete fool of myself playing golf with um, a bunch of folks in the wireless industry. And someone said, well, you've run, you should just run. So someone actually had suggested it to me that I just, you know, if I wanted to have a meeting with someone, a good time to do it might be over a long run. So I thought, you know, that's exactly what I'm going to start doing. 
but um, you know, so it, it, they all start like that. You know, I'll say, hey, you know, because I usually run every morning, like meet in the lobby six a.m. You know, let's go for a run, and um, it, it's a good way to get to know somebody. Um, you just learn all sorts of things. How long? How long do you run for? Um, you know, anywhere from. 30 minutes to an hour. But how many okay. miles? So that's like three to six miles, yeah. you know, maybe a little shorter, but yeah. <laughs> so, okay, I understand how running serves that purpose for you. And in theory, I get it. But when you're actually running with someone, like, and they are faster than you or slower than you, how do you handle that? Well, if they're faster than me, that's a problem. And, right. and I am not that fast of a runner. So usually runners will kind of get to a point where you can run side by side and mm-hmm. still talk. And so that's kind of just something runners do. If you, if, if well, I clearly, Carly has not. Right. So I've heard, <laughs> so, so I hear. <laughs> we do that with fast walking as well. <laughs> you do, okay. <laughs> so you kind of get to that point. But what I realized is um, that, let's say we get to that point, right? And you know, we're kind of both running along. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to start a negotiation or, you know, kind of start to feel the person out about something, um, I could maybe ramp it up a little bit so that they couldn't talk as much. And that (laughs) is a super powerful thing if you're running with someone who's not like a big runner. (laughs) Because then they can't really respond. It's hard for them to. Yeah, that was my question. Is like, when I'm really running, I'm not supposed to be able to talk. Right. So. If you really start running, you will get to the point where okay. you can Well, I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. But that could be a goal. <laughs> exactly. That could be a goal. But someone told me once, in negotiations, you have to use what you have. And mm-hmm. the person who, who was telling me this was a really tall guy. And what he would do is he would stand up and use you know, the full height, his full height in front of somebody. And maybe it was a little bit of an intimidation factor. And I thought, well, this is something I could use. I could just ramp it up a little bit. So my negotiating uh, subject <laughs> couldn't talk. What is your, whatever deals you can tell us, what is kind of the, the biggest deal that you've negotiated while on the run? It would probably go back to the handset days when I was selling handsets, because that was like a constant thing. You know, Every quarter we'd come out with handsets and you'd have to you know, try and show that yours was better than everybody else's. And, and so you're, you're always selling. When you're running with a potential client, what are some of the tells that kind of key you into their negotiating style? You know, one thing, a lot of times people are competitive. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, they may, while they're running, they may try to do back to me what I'm doing to them. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I do have a limit in my speed. <laughs> so when that happens, I try to cut the meeting short, the running meeting short and say, yeah, you know, I got to get back. I got to wash my hair. You know, that's always a good thing. Oh, Guys never really yeah. have to spend that much time on that. And I'm like, oh, I got to get back. I got to wash my hair. <laughs> what if someone is like, no, I absolutely will not go on a run with you? You know, that's Okay, but yeah. that's also telling. Right, that's why, <laughs> I that's why I'm asking. I don't think that is yeah. a fair judgment. Are you talking about Carly right now, that? Danielle? <laughs> well, like, yeah, what do you take away from that? You know what? I wouldn't ever, um, you know, mark you down points, Carly, for not running with me. <laughs> I'll send Danielle. But yeah. I mean, I would, so they're lazy. <laughs> that's not very nice. No, it's, no what What do you, like, are, are well, you feel I would like say they're it's just scared? Like when, or? No. You know, maybe. Yeah. Sometimes 
guys are that way a little bit. They're like, oh, I don't think I'm going to say yes to that. So, you know, there's always a reason not that they aren't, they don't want to run. It's always, you know, some reason why they can't do it. Um, Yeah, it's a little telling. Mm -hmm. Stepping off the track for a second, (laughs) what do you see in general as the biggest mistakes people make when negotiating? Um, I think just not listening and and observing. And because um, a lot of times people are communicating, but but the other side of the table is only hearing what they want to hear, right? And that is just, you know, the beginning of the end. If you can't really listen um, to what the other side is saying, you, you're never going to be able to develop uh, a deal and put a deal together. And so I think it's just not hearing because people think, okay, I want to get this point across. And it's sort of in an engineering term, we call it half duplex, where you're only transmitting in one direction. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what's coming back, body language, eye contact, uh, some comment, they're just, you're just not going to listen to that. And that's just a mistake. We're going to go to my favorite part of the interview, which is a lightning round. Uh, we're going to ask you a bunch of questions, and you have to answer as fast as you can. Oh, my goodness. Okay, okay, I'm ready. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? A nun. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was not expecting yeah, that. Yeah, wait, answer. we gotta stop the lightning round on that one. Pause. Tell us more. what. How long did you think that? <laughs> oh man. Um, okay, so we lived across the street from. We were Catholic, right? I got a lot of British sisters. Well, I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. <laughs> and we lived across the street from the Catholic school yeah. that we all went to, and I'd watch all my brothers and sisters, you know, go to the school, and I was so excited to to, you know, one day uh, get in there. And we, for some reason, none of us went to kindergarten. The Catholic school didn't have kindergarten. The closest kindergarten was too far away. And so we we started in first grade. And so as I'm getting ready to start first grade, I would follow my brothers and sisters um, across the street. Those were the days when you could just like walk over there and then come back on my own, six years old. And I would watch the nuns and I thought, oh, that's the job I want. You know, they were in complete control of those classrooms. <laughs> and, you know, they had the cool outfits back then. That's how dated that this is. It was years ago. They still wore um, the habits. And I just thought that would be the most exciting job in the world. And um, so I was all in on the nun thing. And plus, when you're Catholic, they're always trying to encourage you to be a nun. <laughs> that was always one of the things. Do you have the calling? I'm like, I think I do. I think I do. And then in the second grade, it all went out the window when I met Johnny Lucetta. And so it was actually a boy that I was like, how can I be a nun and like a boy? (laughs) So that was the end of that. That was it. Thank you, Johnny. All right, we're going to go back to the lightning round. Thank you for granting us that pause. Okay. Here we go. College major. Initially business, and then I switched it to electrical engineering. Uh, Worst job. Cleaning houses. That's what I did (laughs) through uh, high school. My uh, all my sisters and I would uh, clean houses for my parents' friends. This yeah, because I had seven sisters, seven sisters and seven brothers. By the way, that was the the split, and I didn't love it. Still don't. <laughs> Worst mistake you've made professionally? Probably not being my authentic self. That that time when I was trying to be what I thought my company wanted me to be, until I finally figured out, you know, what really mattered was for me to be my authentic self. But those years, oh. First call when you get good news. Oh, my husband. First call when you get bad news. My husband. <laughs> <laughs> When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? 
probably with my husband, <laughs> what we were going to do over the holidays. <laughs> I like this theme. What's your go-to interview question? Oh, um, tell me about the t- a time that you've been most successful. Sometimes it's hard for people uh, to, to really verbalize that, but yeah. At this point in your career, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of breaking the lightning round, but at this point <laughs> in your career, you've had tremendous success. You are in a pretty high profile job now. What is What drives you? What motivates you today? Oh my goodness. Um, a lot of things. One, just being at Microsoft. I love it. I mean, I came at a time when the company was starting a change um, in their culture. And I just wanted to be part of that and to, to have watched it change over the last four years has been amazing. And I can't imagine being anywhere else. So that's exciting. But then to be in the tech industry right now, when things are changing so quickly, there's always something new, a new innovation. I can't think of anywhere that would be more exciting than right here, right now at Microsoft in the tech industry. Last question, but it might've been what you just said. Okay. (laughs) Give us your shameless plug. That might have been yeah. what I just said. <laughs> all right, I have, I have a last question that's not about your career at all. How many nieces and nephews do you have? Oh, I think it's like 42 now. And they're all coming to my house. Stop. Um, yeah, the middle of the month here. It's like, it's over, it's like 120 people. Wow. All, everybody, all their spouses and partners. Does and your husband know all of your siblings' names? No. Siblings' no. names? He doesn't? I think he gets them mixed up okay. because... It's, you know, it's two families, like the Brady Bunch. Yeah. And there's actually um, names that are common on both sides. Oh so Shouldn't we, that be easier? Yeah, it should be, because yeah. like there's two Bobs. And we call, I was just saying, just yeah. call yeah. everyone Bob. We call everyone Bob. And one's called Bob and one's called Bubsy. Because you don't want to mess that up. Yeah. <laughs> Peggy, thank you so much. Uh, it's great thank to talk you, to you. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you both. It's great to be here. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.